Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. National security eyebrows shot up last month when a former FBI counterintelligence special agent received a four-year prison sentence. Why? He'd gone to work for a Russian oligarch, a sanctioned oligarch, no less. Robert McGonigal had headed the New York field office for counterintelligence. For some of the lessons everyone with clearance should take away from this, we turn to attorney Dan Meyer, managing partner at Tully Rinky. Dan, good to have you back. Tom, glad to be here. Happy New Year. And this fellow had retired from the FBI, correct, and then went to work for this oligarch? Is that the sequence of events here? Yes, this is one of those instances where a former federal official did not become a retired annuitant and come back and work for the federal government, which many people do, but decided to take his uh, expertise that he learned uh, in the federal government and use it against the United States. So I guess then the main lesson here is even if you've had clearance and you have left the government, you just can't go to work for anybody. Yes. What he violated in the U.S. Code in Title 50 was the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of uh, 1977. So this was not a security clearance violation. This was a criminal act where he basically betrayed the United States by working with our enemies. And if you work for the government in any capacity the first time you join or periodically, do you get reminders of that kind of prohibition? By the way, you can't do this when you've been an employee for the government or nobody can work for a Russian oligarch. Well, what happens is this. You work for the federal government for many years, and you don't understand the type of advice and counsel that private executives get all the time because, you know, you have a pretty good setup in a federal agency. There's a general counsel and deputy general counsels and assistant general counsels, and everything you do as a Fed is screened for you, and you don't have to think about the compliance issues. Then you go out on your own and all of a sudden you're setting up your own uh, system and you need to go out and get advice. And if he got advice, he ignored it. If he didn't get advice, that was a very, uh, well, it was a bad decision on his part. This could fall into two different categories. One, you're just ignorant and, oh, that seems like a nice guy, lots of herring and, you know, maybe exotic travel. And then there's those that know exactly what they're doing and they somehow maybe feel that's a way to get revenge on what they felt might have been a stilted career or something and going to work for someone prohibited? Well, you're on to a really important point there. When I used to advise internal affairs for the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, I worked for a a senior executive who was a former Secret Service agent, and he gave me some great insights into law enforcement, and this was law enforcement that he was in, And that when you work so close to the line in assessing other people's actions and following the rules, you can get a little too comfortable with your own compliance. Law enforcement personnel often call this bad head work. And I think that may have been what happened here is that he had spent many years, you know, reviewing cases, bringing materials forward so that prosecutors could go after spies. And he started to feel very comfortable in an environment. And there is a tendency at that point then to substitute your judgment for the rule of law. And this is not a unique situation, Tom. It's been happening all across the board in Washington uh, for well over a decade. I think it's on the rise because you've got a global marketplace and public knowledge and information gained as a public service can be commodified and can be banked on. 
and people go out and they try to make money. And if I had been him, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, uh, I would have gotten counsel. But even then, I can tell you as an attorney, there are lots of clients who will get counsel and still decide to go ahead and break the law. We're speaking with Dan Meyer. He's managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. And the McGonagall case is a case of someone having left the government and going and doing this. But then there are those, and these pop up with sort of dreary regularity, going back to the Hansen case, some of the, back to the 1970s. And that is people who, while they are working long term for the government, are actually double agents. The latest one was Manuel Roca. You know, he'll go to jail probably for the rest of his life for aiding and abetting Cuba as a double agent for many, many years, 40 years. You know, part of this is our squeamishness with actually using the treason laws. It really was disturbing that case. And you know, that strikes to the heart of our decision-making process. And those cases happen with enough frequency that it's a reminder that for all the frustration our security clearance process causes, and many people really chafe under the requirements of having a security clearance, the whole process is there to try to find these people and get them out before they can do damage. And, you know, I applaud the prosecution going forward. Uh, but what really needs to be uh, done, and I, and I think the Congress is the, the body to do this, is somebody's got to burrow in and find out why this guy who had high clearances uh, was able to operate so long without effective scrutiny. You know, my frustration at times is that the sort of flash in the pan media cases, the reality winners and and such, uh, people who are lower ranked, they, they don't seem to get a break, okay? Whereas people senior, higher up do get breaks. And there's a frustration in that. It seems to be if you're powerful, if you're well-placed, somehow there's a double standard and and that can really endanger the republic. Yeah, so he's going to probably end up, that is to say, Roca will end up in the supermax and he can trade spy stories with Robert Hansen, who's spending the rest of his life out there. Well, his case will go into the archives. You remember Hansen was during the year of the spies, 1985, where the you know KGB just picked our pockets. They made us look like buffoons. And, you know, we, we were losing the Cold War in terms of spycraft because they successfully got a whole bunch of people, the uh, Aldrich James, Anna Montez, using the Cubans to get her in over a DIA. So all of our informed understanding of people's reliability really comes out in 1985. In his case, I'm predicting will be studied in the various places where uh, they do the policy for security clearance processing to see where we went wrong. And, and it may be that we even see amendments to the adjudicative guidelines based on that experience. Because every rule you're held to as a federal worker, a service member, or a contractor is rooted back to some instance where somebody picked our pocket and took our stuff. And it's all empirical. It's all based on what we know about people's behaviors based on the failures in the past. And you know what people chafe at is that they, they don't want to be held to the standard or they think it doesn't apply to them. But you know the bottom line, when you're put under a lot of pressure, people will do some very strange things. And this was a classic case of it. Yes. Do we know of any behaviors that managers can look out for that might indicate someone is doing this? I mean, in the case of Hansen, I think he brought the secrets in paper bags or something and stuck them under a lamppost or a bridge in a park. Kind of odd 
but that was maybe before the internet was so ubiquitous <laughs> and we had the dark web or whatever. But do managers well, ever get briefed in that kind of thing? Hey, well, look at this behavior. Well, the behavior you want to focus on, that's actually in trying to, you know, find the behavior that leads to the case. That That's for the gumshoes to do it down. And, and you know, they're okay with it. Our counterintelligence infrastructure struggles at times in that, in that work because I don't think they get enough resources. Uh, the critical thing, though, on the behavior is what drives people to do this? What drives people to betray the country? You know, in, in some of the cases in the 80s, it was financial. People, you know, were frustrated living on government salaries and they wanted to buy a fancy car or, or have a vacation home somewhere. Uh, so there was envy, you know, that, uh, you know, a prosperous economy where people in the private sectors were making more. So financial, you know, we understand that under Guideline F. We can uh, look at people's credit reports. We can look at other publicly available information. Uh, we can look at gambling records. Those are all subject to the algorithms now under continuous monitoring. But when you get into the foreign contacts, it gets really, really interesting. So we have a global economy. We have to be able to operate with connections worldwide. So we value those connections in many cases. So how do you value the connections but still filter out those cases where foreign influence or foreign preference may be operating? And this has been very difficult in the post-9-11 period because we reached out to a lot of Near Eastern people, came in, they became Americans, they did great work for us during 9-11. And now that we're on the downside of those wars, well, they're over, everybody's scratching their heads wondering, well, are all these people reliable? And so then you have to go back and you have to look at their contacts, you have to look at who's got associations with what individuals, and it's very, very difficult work. It's getting easier to do with artificial intelligence because a lot can be hoovered off of the internet and you can sift through things. But in the end, it, it's really an asymmetrical warfare situation. You have to win every battle. Uh, and all the enemy has to do is get one person to crack and give you the goods. And, and that's why it gets tough. Dan Meyer is managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. As always, thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.